Over the last 15 Sunday evenings, we've been studying the issue of biblical typology. During these 15 or so sermons, we have seen a vast spread of things picturing Christ and his people. We've seen objects such as the rock who was Christ, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, manna, the ark. We've seen festivals such as the year of Jubilee. We've seen animals such as the Passover lamb. We've seen numbers such as the number 12. But the most frequent type of Christ, the picture, the foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament, have been men. And over half the types we've examined have been historical flesh and blood men. Think of some of these men. Adam that we've examined. Adam, Abraham, Joseph, Samson, Jonah, the high priest, Joshua, and David. The Lord Jesus Christ is so rich in glory that a single strand of prophecy could never properly prepare his people for his coming. So the Old Testament is jammed with different types of Christ, all of which speak of different facets of his person and work. Now, just a reminder, a type is a, is a literary device, a feature that the biblical authors use on purpose to show readers that historical events and people are all foreshadowing the life and work of Jesus, preparing his people for the coming of Christ. Tonight we will examine one final type, and this is also a historical person, that is the person of King Solomon. As we prepare to open this word, let's seek the Lord's help now. O sovereign Lord, tonight give us attention and discernment and concentration and understanding of your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hope you'll have your Bible open to 1 Kings 3, what Mr. Kuo read in your hearing a moment ago. I was, as Mark was reading, I was thinking, only 14 more Sundays with Mark and Joan. And uh, so we will, that, that deep weeping that you'll hear when their plane takes off will be Sandy and I as they go back to Taiwan. Uh, hope you'll get uh, all of your farewells and encouragements uh, sent to Mark and Jane. They have most of their support raised, and so they are chomping at the bit to get back to the calling that the Lord has for them. We will miss them greatly here. But as we look tonight at Solomon, it's going to be important that we remind you, or perhaps for the first time, show you who Solomon is. I've found that Solomon is not a well-known character, oddly enough. And so just a few things you should know about Solomon so we can rightly see how he is a type of Christ. The first is you need to know Solomon's family. Solomon, of course, is his parents are David and Bathsheba, who together uh, formed the most infamous case of adultery in history. Bathsheba, a married woman, is pregnant with David's child. And to cover his adultery, King David has Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. And their first son is the product of that adultery, and he dies, according to 2 Samuel 12. But after David's repentance, he and Bathsheba conceive again. Their second son is Solomon. Solomon has several infamous half-brothers. Those include Amnon, Adonijah, Absalom, all from different mothers. David's house was a mess. You would have thought, wouldn't you, that Solomon grew up in this house where all of these older brothers, all from different mothers, all were constantly vying for the throne, and the intrigue was constant. You would think David would say, 
That's not for me. I'm not going to have six or seven wives when I get older. I'm going to be a, I'm going to understand God's purpose for marriage. I'm going to be a one woman man. Solomon was not David's oldest son. He was way back. Depending on how you figure the line of succession, he was somewhere between sixth and tenth in the line of kingly succession. But he was the chosen son, according to 1 Chronicles 22. Reminding us that God does not always choose the likely, the oldest son, as David's own coronation illustrates. And then a second thing you should know about Solomon in addition to his family dynamics is his kingship. If you look at 1 Kings 3.7, that part of the passage that Mark read in just a, a moment ago, we are told that Solomon ascends to the throne as a young man. Solomon actually calls himself a little child. But he, if we do the chronology right, he's about 18 years old when he ascends to the throne. And in keeping with standard Middle Eastern practices, Solomon quickly disposes of all his rivals and enemies, including his half-brother Adonijah. Now, just so you'll know what the ideal king is, because I'm going to keep holding up Solomon and kingship and saying there is a greater Solomon, just like we said, there's a there's a, a greater David, a greater Jonah. There is a greater Solomon. So listen to what his father David writes about what a king should be. In 2 Samuel 23, <clears throat> David writes, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. Now, neither David nor his successors fit this portrait. Yet God promised that just such a man, a man marked by holiness and wisdom, would eventually come from David's line. In fact, long after David and Solomon are dead, 400 years after they're both dead, the prophet writes in Isaiah 11 about the coming king, the greater Solomon, the perfect king, and writes these words, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But in righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt, and faithfulness as well. And so Solomon ascends to the kingship, Things look good at the beginning, even though he's a young man. And then the accomplishments begin to roll out. You have never seen a resume like Solomon puts together. Under Solomon, Israel enjoyed its golden age of power and wealth and influence. A zenith never achieved again during the Old Covenant era. The greatest accomplishment of Solomon's reign was the construction. All of the building projects he took on. The first one was the temple. We read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 2. The temple which began at his fourth year on the throne. It took seven years to build. Just the amount of rich cedar wood in that temple is stunning. And then gold covered the walls, the ceiling, and the floors of the main sanctuary of the temple. When you study the design of the temple in Second Chronicles, you learn what Jehovah considers to be aesthetically pleasing. It's astoundingly beautiful, the temple is. But then comes, after the temple is completed, after seven years, in Second Chronicles 5, then comes the dedication of the temple. The number of sheep and oxen 
sacrifice was so huge, no one could even keep track. And when the Levites finally carried the Ark of the Covenant into the new temple, we're told in that moment, the glory cloud filled the temple. The temple was thick with the Shekinah glory. And it was at that moment in 2 Chronicles 6 that Solomon gave a speech and then prayed one of the most theocentric prayers in the Bible. It's a missionary prayer. It's a covenantal prayer that reckons with generational issues. It's a model prayer for repenters. And at the close of Solomon's prayer, and this this may be the moment in his life, when you think about what's the peak moment of his life, Solomon has just built for seven years this temple. He has just sacrificed thousands and thousands of his, his own livestock. He's just dedicated the temple and just prayed. And in that moment, we're told in Second Chronicles 7, fire came down from heaven, consuming the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the priests could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Well, these dedication ceremonies that Solomon presided over, <clears throat> according to Second Chronicles 7, took three weeks. Solomon then took another 13 years to build his own royal palace in Second Chronicles 8. It, too, was built with huge stones, stones that were 15 feet across. And his own house also, mirroring the temple, was inlaid with cedar and gold. Then the authors of the Old Testament began to focus on Solomon's building projects and his trade. We're told in 2 Chronicles 8 that he rebuilt whole cities that had been torn down. According to 2 Chronicles 8, he exerted control. He was an economic mastermind. He exerted control over northern trade routes in what we would call today Syria. And this enabled Israel to control the trade all over the Middle East. And then Solomon began to fortify cities near Jerusalem that were vital to the city's defense and that guarded these trade routes from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean coast. Solomon did this all on the backs of slave labor, of the remaining Canaanites who still lived in Israel and hadn't been wiped out. Then, something unheard of in Israeli history. During the reign of Solomon, Israel finally entered the sea trade. Israel had no experience up until this point with sea commerce. But Hiram of Tyre was was Solomon's friend, one of the Phoenicians whose expertise was in shipping. He gave ships and sailors to Solomon. They engaged in trade. And immediately, as with everything else, Solomon is wildly successful. We're told in 2 Chronicles 8 that he, he is stacking up talents of gold, 17 tons of gold come out of the shipping trade. His fame, his wisdom, his wealth achieve international renown. The Queen of Sheba, we would call it today modern day Yemen. The Queen of Sheba came to see the glory of his kingdom and to test his wisdom. She brought him gifts, but Solomon gave her more, according to Second Chronicles 9. As God had promised, the descendants of Abraham were blessing the world. But the real centerpiece of everything about Solomon was his wisdom. Look at 1 Kings 3, pick up the narrative in verse 16, and you have a sample case that shows how wise he was. It's two women, seems like two throwaway people, two harlots in 1 Kings 3, verse 16. And they are arguing over whose baby is the dead baby, whose baby is the live baby. 
It's the most difficult type of case because this is a, a she said, she said case. And you know that in biblical justice, there have to be two witnesses who can attest to a fact. In this case, you don't have that. You don't have a multiplicity of witnesses. There are no witnesses. And so what would happen in a case like this is a typical Israelite judge would just dismiss the case. And so whoever's in the right doesn't get justice. Whoever's in the wrong prevails. So Solomon devised a plan to reveal the judicial solution, you can read about it there. It involves a sword and slicing the baby in half, but that doesn't happen, and the true mother of the child is, is reconnected. But his wisdom wasn't just in the courtroom. Solomon's wisdom and learning, we are told, included music and zoology and botany and philosophy. He was a student of practically every intellectual discipline. If there is a Renaissance man in the Bible, it is Solomon. And his wisdom was known throughout the region. Then there are his writings, and it will surprise you once you begin to remember what all he penned. Solomon, by the Holy Spirit, penned Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and a few Psalms. Now, when you think of what constitutes the wisdom books of the Old Testament, there are only five, and Solomon contributes to four of them. There, only Job is excluded from his authorship. And then when you realize that Solomon's father, David, penned most of the Psalms, it's incredible to, to think that four-fifths of the wisdom literature come from a father-son pair, from David and Solomon. So think of what Solomon wrote, and this is where his wisdom is on display forever. First, there's the Song of Solomon. He's renowned for its beautiful depiction of marital love and is traditionally believed to be written by Solomon in his youth. And then second, there are the Proverbs, which are full of guidance for everyday holy living, encouraging the pursuit of wisdom. They seem to have been written in the prime of Solomon's life. Solomon, we're told in Proverbs 1, penned this book, Proverbs, to teach wise living in every facet of life. So you can learn. All you have to do, wisdom is there for the taking. You have to ask God and he will give wisdom. He'll give it through the reading of his word. Open up Proverbs chapter 1 and you can learn God's wise perspective on work, marriage, parenting, neighbor relations, money management, leadership, followership, friendship, home life, and a host of other issues. And what Solomon's Proverbs teach you is that God is concerned with every aspect of your life. No compartmentalism allowed. No sacred secular dichotomy. No one day per week Christian. Not just theoretical knowledge, but incredibly practical. And what Solomon teaches in Proverbs is biblical wisdom is always practical, not theoretical. Wisdom is the art of skillful living. Wisdom is knowing the appropriate action for each life situation. Wisdom, to be wise, is the opposite of the fool. The fool never knows what is appropriate. He dances at funerals and weeps at weddings. He says and does the wrong things at the wrong time. But the wise man gets it. He understands, and that's what Proverbs does. It makes you wise. Wisdom, of course, in the fullest sense, belongs to God alone. And it's hidden from the unbeliever, and it's hidden for the believer. But not only do Solomon's Proverbs intend to teach wisdom, they're given to teach wisdom to every kind of person. We read in Proverbs 1, if you're simple, the book of Proverbs will teach you prudence. If you're young, the book of Proverbs by Solomon's pen will teach you knowledge and discretion. Are you already wise and mature? Proverbs 1.5 says, then read Proverbs and you can hear an increase in learning. 
Are you a, a young boy? Proverbs 5 and 7 will teach you how to be a man and how to avoid all the moral potholes. Proverbs imparts moral insight. It teaches, according to Proverbs 1-3, justice, judgment, and equity. True wisdom always shows up in a framework of, a moral framework of holy practices. Proverbs wasn't given to increase your ability to be crafty and clever like Machiavelli's The Prince. No. Proverbs has a thread of holy wisdom that transforms a scheming person of evil devices into a man of prudence, from craftiness into discretion. But Solomon's only getting warmed up. Not only does he write Song of Solomon as a a young man, Proverbs as a middle-aged man, Ecclesiastes seems to be written by Solomon at the close of his life. It provides insight into the meaning of life. And then... Solomon contributes to a fourth wisdom book. He writes some psalms. In fact, some of our favorite psalms for congregational singing, Psalm 72 and 127, are penned by Solomon. Each of these books, Solomon, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, each of these books displays the wisdom that God gave Solomon, emphasizing always the importance of fearing the Lord and seeking the wisdom that comes from him. So now with that backdrop, let's talk about how Solomon is a type of Jesus. I want to restrict this tonight. Last week, I think I gave you 24 or 38 or something like that. The points of correspondence between David and and Jesus. Tonight, I want to be very restricted, just confine myself to five or six ways that Solomon is a type, a weak type of pointing towards the greater Solomon. And so the first way that Solomon is a type of Jesus, his name. His name Solomon is a derivative of Hebrew word shalom, and it means man of peace. His reign was marked by peace. Just turn the page to 1 Kings 4 and notice what we read about Solomon there. These are astounding words because they're so rare. This certainly couldn't have been said of his father David, nor hardly any other ruler in world history. In 1 Kings 4 verse 24 we read, Solomon had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safety, safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. That's an astounding thing. For 40 years... His reign is marked by an absence of warfare. But he's just but a faint pointer towards the greater Solomon. Because the greater Solomon, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've said for the last several weeks that typology always involves an escalation. That the type is lesser and Jesus is greater. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we're told in Isaiah 9. And then we are told about the peaceful conditions that the greater Solomon will bring. Listen to these words from Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion together, and a little child shall lead them. And so what we are meant to see is Solomon has a peaceful kingdom for 40 years. But the greater Solomon has a peaceful kingdom that lasts for all eternity. A second way that Solomon is a type of Christ is the Lord was pleased with Solomon. It's an astounding thing. Look back at 1 Kings verse 3. 
<clears throat> Mark read this in your hearing a moment ago, where Solomon asks for wisdom. And so when he asked for wisdom instead of all these other things, the Lord added every blessing to granting his initial request for wisdom and discernment. Look, for example, pick up the narrative in verse 5 of 1 Kings 3. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, Ask, what shall I give you? Solomon in verse 7, I'm a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Verse 9, Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. Look at verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord. That Solomon asks this thing. And then the Lord promises him, in addition to wisdom, he's going to bless him with riches and honor. And so what we see here is an occasion, it's certainly not all of his life, but a, a momentous occasion when Solomon's actions clearly pleased the Lord. But that's just a faint picture of the greater Solomon. For the Father is always pleased with the Son. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8 verse 29. The Father has not left me alone because I always do those things that please him. By the end of Solomon's life, if you ask him, are you always pleasing to the Father? Solomon would have to hang his head and say, I wrote the book of Ecclesiastes about that. And the answer is no. But the greater Solomon, the Lord Jesus, always is pleasing to the Father. And not just some of his requests will be fulfilled, but all of them. And so when the greater Solomon prays in John 17, the high priestly prayer, and asks for the Father to glorify him, and for the Father to sanctify all the elect, all billions of them, and for the Father to pour out sweet unity on believers, we know that the Father will answer in the affirmative because he's always pleased with the Son. A third way that Solomon is a type. Solomon's wisdom. His wisdom was stupendous. I want you to just get a tiny taste of his wisdom. You and I have never seen a wise man in leadership. I have no fear of contradiction in saying that. We've never seen it. What we've seen are, are corrupt fools whose tongues are unhinged. But Solomon was known for profound wisdom. That joined with rulership. Turn the page to 1 Kings 4 and notice what Scripture says of him. This isn't his own assessment of himself. Oh, sure, there are a lot of men who will save themselves. I am wise. You should trust me. But look at what Scripture says, what the Holy Spirit says. Solomon's wisdom was acknowledged by all men, even by the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Kings 4, verse 29 and following. God gave Solomon wisdom, an exceedingly great understanding, and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus, Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. And then what's listed for us is a list of really wise men. Ethan the Ezraite, Heman, Chalcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal. These are, these are like the ultimate group of smart, wise guys. And the Holy Spirit says, Psh, amateurs. Solomon is, is wiser than all them combined. And we read that not only is he wise, but pick up the end of verse 31. His fame for his wisdom was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees 
from the cedar tree of Lebanon even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Can you imagine? Here's Solomon who has to post office hours. Well, I'll be sitting on my throne dispensing wisdom on Thursdays from 1 to 5. Because that's what we are told in verse 34. Representative from all the kings in every nation came just to hear his wisdom. So when the queen of Sheba comes, we're told in 1 Kings, 1 Kings verse 10, that she comes with a list of questions. These are, these are unbreakable knots that no one has ever been able to solve before. And it would take wisdom that's otherworldly. She asks these questions, and we're told in 1 Kings 10 verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. There was no, nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And so she responds, the queen of Sheba does. Happier your men and happier those who are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. And so I hope you grasp a little bit. The Holy Spirit repeatedly says, wisest man ever. But the greater Solomon. The greater Solomon, we are told in John 7 verse 46. Never a man spoke like this man. And in our New Testament reading earlier, Mark read, I hope you'll look there. I want you to notice, there, here's where we know this is a type because we're given the greater than, less than. Look at Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> and I want you to notice what Jesus says of himself. This is not boasting. He is simply explaining who he is in relation to these great Old Testament figures. He is trying to say to Israel, don't you get it? Whether it was Abraham or Moses or David or Jonah or Solomon, all of those men were pointing towards me. They're preparing the way for me. So in Luke 11, verse 31, Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And listen to what he says. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. That's how you know this is a legitimate type. Jesus is using greater and lesser language here. And he's saying, Solomon was just a down payment for me. He was just a preparation for me. Now, think of how Jesus' wisdom is greater than Solomon's. Because when you read the, the comments made in 1 Kings 4, it seems pretty amazing. But think of how his wisdom is greater than Solomon's. Solomon is able to analyze the creation. We saw that he, he understood zoology and botany and astronomy and all of these things. But Jesus, the greater Solomon, was the one who spoke these things into being. Not only is the greater Solomon's covenant of redemption amazing, saving a great number of sinners, billions of them, and doing so while being just and the justifier of the wicked, but his wisdom is, is breathtaking in scope. He will sit and judge every man who's ever lived, billions and billions, and do so with perfect justice. There are difficult cases, and this is what I have to speak to, how he is the greater than Solomon. Solomon, of course, that case we saw in 1 Kings 3 where you have the two women, one baby died, one didn't, and Solomon was able to, to bring great wisdom and make what was wrong right in one case. But there are difficult cases, billions of them, 
far more so than the two women in 1 Kings 3 that need to be adjudicated with perfect wisdom. Think of all the personal issues that have never been judged rightly. Molestation cases, abuse that's never been exposed, crimes against helpless children in the middle of the night need to be judged rightly. Justice needs to be brought. Then there are huge international issues like genocide. From 1885 to 1905, after King Leopold of Belgium took over Central Africa, he forced the residents into slave labor on rubber plantations. His armies slaughtered a minimum of 10 million citizens of the Congo, all while making huge profits off their free labor. Or think of Rwanda. In 1994, during their three-month civil war, a million Hutus and Tutsis were violently executed. Hardly anyone has been brought to justice. And from North and South America to Australia, indigenous people have had their land and livelihoods stolen, never restored. I could go on and on. What will the greater Solomon do about this? Paul, just as an afterthought, as an aside, in Romans 2.16, we are told that Jesus, as the greater Solomon, will judge all the secrets of men. He will make every wrong right. If you are like Sandy and I, we, you probably have these people in your family. We have some family members who feel like they got the, the raw end of the deal in 1960 or something like that on a land and oil deal, typical Oklahoma stuff. And they've been talking about it for 60 years. and They've just grown more and more and more bitter. And you could take cases like that in your family. We could multiply it by a thousand here tonight. And you think, will there ever be justice But the point is, the lesser Solomon, for 40 years, he dispensed wise justice. But the greater Solomon, he will dispense justice to all men who come and stand before his throne. He will make all wrongs right. A fourth way that Solomon is a a type and a down payment on the greater Solomon. As a king, we're told, look, for example, at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21. And you can see the extent, the geographic extent of his kingdom. We read in 1 Kings 4, verse 21. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms, from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. And then again in verse 24, he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsai even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And what we see is Solomon's reign spreads out. If you look at a map of the Middle East, a lot of it would be colored in during Solomon's reign. But that's nothing compared to the spread of the reign of the greater Solomon. The greater Solomon is expanding his rule and reign and has been for 2,000 years. And his rule and reign will expand until that day we are told of in Philippians 2. When every knee bows... And every tongue acknowledges his kingship. Solomon was definitely the lesser, and our Jesus is the greater. There's another way that Solomon is a type and a down payment, a pointer towards Jesus. Solomon had glory. Even Jesus acknowledged it. Listen to these words. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I say to you that even, this is Jesus saying it, Even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of them. 
His glory, Solomon's glory, was the accumulated weightiness of his gold, his reputation, his home, his building projects. He had human glory. But how much greater, how much greater is the glory of the greater Solomon Jesus? Listen to what we're told of him. Just get a glimpse of his glory that you'll see in full one day in Revelation chapter 5. We're told of that great throne scene where everyone is gathered around the throne, billions and billions of the elect, people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And we are told there, every creature, Revelation 5, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them say, blessing, honor, glory be to him who sits on the throne forever." And ever. Was Solomon's glory stupendous? Yes, you would fall down in amazement. But it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the glory of the greater Solomon, who has billions of worshipers forever. All of those things would lead you to think that Solomon has a, a high reputation. But Solomon had an Achilles heel. A deadly character flaw. A huge area of his life that did not foreshadow his descendant. In no way can we look at this area of his life and say, we see in some small way a pointer towards Jesus. And I'm speaking of his polygamy. Always unlawful. 1 Kings 3.1 tells us of the beginnings of this, of treaties with the Egyptian Pharaoh and a politically motivated marriage with Pharaoh's daughter. And because of many such strategic alliances, Israel hardly saw a battle for Solomon's 40-year reign. But this is how he made peace, by marrying the local king's daughter and marrying the next king's daughter and the next and the next. But his practice of marriage proved to be his Achilles' heel. Listen to what we're told of Solomon in 1 Kings 11. <clears throat> Solomon loved many foreign women, the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, because they will turn your heart away after other gods. But Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and now comes the Perhaps the saddest line in Solomon's bio. And his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. And so what we see is just like with every one of the other 14 types that we've seen, now with the 15th, all of these types break down. They're all fallen in some way, all ruined by the fall. And so no matter what we're speaking of, the rock, the ark, David, Jonah, whatever it is, they always fall short in pointing towards Jesus. I have to make this application as we come now to the Lord's table. We see even a picture here of Solomon and the greater Jesus. Solomon's table was bountiful. Everything about him was large. It was on a huge scale. Samson's or Solomon's table was bountiful. It's befitting a great king. 
And so listen to what we're told about his table from 1 Kings 4. Solomon's provisions for his table for one day was 30 cores of fine flour. I'm not sure what a core is, but it must be big. 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pasture, 100 sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. And so you think, boy, nobody has ever set a better table. But Jesus, the greater Solomon, spreads a much more glorious table before you tonight. A table for his sons and daughters that is far more lavish and costly. This table is free for every poor sinner. At this table we eat his flesh and drink his blood. And when we sit at this table, it's always in anticipation of the great marriage feast of the Lamb. Let's pray together. O sovereign Lord, possessor of all wisdom, we say with King Solomon that we're like little children who don't know whether to go out or come in. We freely acknowledge that none of us are born with wisdom, and if we are to be wise, we must receive it by your word and your Holy Spirit. So tonight, Lord, we would ask that you would give us understanding and discernment and that rare jewel of wisdom. We ask in hope, since you who cannot lie promise to give wisdom to all who come humbly asking. But how we praise you tonight, that you have hidden all of the treasures of wisdom in Christ. And so we glorify you for one more benefit of our union with Jesus. Not only is his righteousness ours, but also his wisdom. We pray in the name of the one who has perfect wisdom, even Jesus our Lord. Amen.